This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast exploring hot topics and exciting advances in childhood cancer. TWIPO is produced by Solving Kids Cancer, nonprofits located in New York and London dedicated to improving research and supporting families because every kid deserves to grow up. Subscribe to TWIPO through your favorite podcast platform. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This Week in Pediatric Oncology, a podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. And this is episode number 85, recorded on April 21st, 2021. I am your co-host, Brenda Weigel from the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. I am here along with my co-host, Dr. Tim Kripe from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Hi, Tim, and welcome. Hi, Brenda. Thank you, Tim. This week in pediatric oncology, we have a guest, Dr. Sturgios Zacharoulis. It is our pleasure to have Dr. Zacharoulis with us today. And as a way of introduction, he originally hails from Greece, where he received his medical degree, uh, then traveled to the university, to Yale University to start his residency, which was subsequently completed at the State University of New York. He then went on to a pediatric hematology oncology fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. And then really paving the way for a career in neuro-oncology, did a neuro-oncology fellowship at the Dana-Farber Cancer Center in Boston Children's Hospital. He completed this in 2004 and then traveled for a brief time for two years uh, as a Uh, a physician uh, oncologist at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. Then in 2006, he moved to London, England, where he assumed the role of chairman of pediatric oncology at Harley Street Clinic and pediatric neuro-oncology lead at the Royal Marsden until 2018, when he returned to the United States and joined Columbia University Medical Center, where he is director of the Initiative of Novel Drug Delivery Program for Pediatric Brain Tumors. It is this exciting work in developing novel ways to target the treatment of brain tumors that we look forward to hearing more about today. And Dr. Um, Sakharoulis has really spent the last many years of his career forging ways to get treatments into the brain, into brain tumors to better the treatment of some of the most difficult to treat cancers, particularly diffuse intrinsic pontine gliomas, where the outcomes are still quite devastating. So Dr. Dr. Sakharoulis, thank you for being with us. We welcome you. We look forward to hearing more about your exciting work. And to start off, I I think it would be helpful if you can describe for us a little bit about why overcoming some of the obstacles of, and some of the challenges for treating brain tumors is so critically important? What are some of those barriers um, and, and why the work that you have been doing is so critical to advance the field? Brenda, thank you so much for the very kind introduction. Uh, firstly, I want to uh, thank you and uh, Dr. Crab as well and the whole team who organized this. I, I must admit I'm a, a fanatic listener, listener of the podcast, so I'm very pleased to be also part of it now. Um, yes, yeah, so these are extremely critical questions when it comes to the treatment for children with brain tumors. Um, the, we have been 
using several medications, several chemotherapies, several approaches for many decades. And in fact, for the very vast majority, we have not made uh, significant progress. I think part of it is that um, we are a bit slow into uh, learning our lessons. And what do I mean by that is that in addition to the tremendous complexity of the brain tumors, uh, namely the heterogeneity of the tumors having different parts and different pieces uh, within the same tumor, the complex biology, one of the biggest obstacles has been the way that we deliver the drugs. For example, we have been making assumptions that the medications will reach the target in sufficient concentrations that can have a therapeutic uh, effect. And uh, unfortunately, this has not been the case all along. Uh, to add to the confusion, we have been successful uh, in some brain tumors, for example, metaloblastomas, uh, which are considered malignant brain tumors, and despite that, they are considered chemosensitive. But the main, uh, main aspect of the issues that we have not resolved yet is the blood-brain barrier, uh, and how we overcome this in addition to all the other issues we, uh, we mentioned. And what blood-brain barrier is, is this natural barrier that uh, thankfully we have in our, in our body to prevent any toxic substances like medications uh, or viruses, etc., to enter uh, to cause uh, damage. And it's a, a very highly complex neurovascular uh, unit composing, composed of different types of cells, like endothelial cells, parasites, astrocytic food processes, neurons, mast cells, microglia, and circulating uh, immune cells. Um, this, uh, all these cells together, they have a tremendous uh, dialogue amongst themselves, and they, they have even uh, include adhesive uh, proteins or tight junction prote proteins that uh, regulate what molecule and what proteins passes through this uh, barrier. Uh, and of course, we have several mechanisms in addition to the simple diffusion that uh, are accounting for the physiology of the blood pain barrier, including uh, uh, receptor mediated active transportations, ion channels, etc. So, a very highly complex unit that is supposed to protect us from uh, for our, protect our brain, but at the same time, is a big problem when it comes to uh, brain tumor therapeutics. What um, can you tell us about the disruption of the blood-brain barrier in a tumor? Because sometimes we hear, oh, it's disrupted in the tumor, so delivery of small molecules is okay. Uh, is, it, is it disrupted? How much is it disrupted? Does it vary by tumor type or tumor size? What do we know about, about that? Right, so this is an excellent question. And uh, in fact, this is one of the biggest challenges that we have in, uh, in neuro-oncology. So right now we are, uh, when we evaluate a brain tumor by imaging, when we see the contrast enhancement, uh, we make the pseudo assumption that the contrast enhancement means necessarily that the blood-brain barrier is open, which is not true. Uh, in at least 
in most of the cases. Just to add to this, we, we do not have right now a good imaging modality to predict where the blood-bearing barrier is open and where is not. Uh, and to give the clear examples of that is we have, for example, low-grade gliomas, where uh, they are, which are, are not enhancing necessarily by contrast. And despite that, they are responsive to conventional chemotherapy with carboplatin, vincristin, etc. Uh, we have glioblastomas, on the other hand, who are highly enhancing with the contrast, which might indicate that there is some disruption of the blood brain barrier, who, uh, which unfortunately, when we evaluate under the microscope, we see a very heterogeneous uh, areas of opening and closing of the blood brain barrier to the degree that the pathologist can evaluate. So right now, uh, we don't have good tools in our hands to evaluate which tumors and where exactly the blood brain barrier is open. We shouldn't forget that we have normal parts within our brain that the blood brain barrier and it, it is open naturally uh, in very small areas. But even for those, we don't have imaging areas to clarify the exact anatomic location. So it's, some, it's an area of intense uh, in investigation in terms of imaging and anatomical correlation. So the answer in, in short terms is that we are far from predicting that. And having sort of described the, the challenges of the blood-brain barrier and also the challenges of assessing the blood-brain barrier, what do you feel are the most promising ways that we could look to opening up the blood-brain barrier um, to better deliver uh, treatments? Yes, so this is uh, a topic obviously of great interest to me, but uh, also the intense research that is ongoing for in various centers right now. So in general, we have various ways that we at least attempting to disrupt the blood-brain barrier. Some of them are very direct, like the convention enhanced delivery, or separating the endothelial cells with uh, using a special frequency ultrasounds that's it's called the focused ultrasound with microbubbles. There are uh, there are other forms of therapies that bypass the blood-brain barrier, like an intra-arterial therapy with its limitations. The intranasal delivery of drugs can also bypass the blood-brain barrier, uh, which also has some uh, limitations. Um, so these are the big categories of research and efforts that have been made. And of course, there's the nanotechnology that is taking place, it has been taking place for decades now, to change the way that uh, the medications are practically packaged so that they can pass through the barrier and diffuse properly across. I have one more question about the barrier itself. Does it limit immune cells as well, uh, so that CAR T cells or others and do we need to disrupt it in order to enable immunotherapies? Absolutely, this is an excellent question. In fact, this is a very uh, relevant area to pediatric brain tumor, clinical pediatric brain tumor research right now, when it comes to CAR T cells, all these exciting things. So what we know 
is that for the T cells, in order to go through the, the blood pain barrier, they need to be activated. First, they launch into the endothelium and they can enter through only if they are in an activated state, one. And second, they might require uh, antigens like the MIC class one antigens to bind in order for, for them to start activating in a way that they can create a crosstalk with the adhesion molecules so that they can pass through. So right now the brain is extremely protected from uh, the immune response. Therefore, it is the homing of the T cells is extremely poor. And this is where uh, the immunotherapy in uh, pediatric uh, neuro-oncology has been lacking behind. Uh, the same for adult neuro-oncology, but even more so in pediatrics, given the limitations that we have with advancement in clinical research in general. Dr. Sakharilis, building on that, do you think of the types of approaches that you described to opening the blood-brain barrier? Are there benefits or limitations to some of those those approaches that would be better suited to pairing with immunotherapy versus pairing with other types of, of chemotherapy approaches um, with regards to allowing greater enhancement of immune cells um, or, or allowing for greater penetration of chemotherapy, et cetera. Are there, are there gonna be different approaches given different combinations and potentially different tumor types? Yes, this is a, an excellent question. So taking one by one, the conventional hands delivery has the tremendous advantage of being uh, direct and uh, have, you have direct access into the tissue. By the way, the conventional hands delivery, what it is, it is a, a infusion of medications or agents under steady pressure. And the way that it works is that it is it takes advantage of the bulk flow as opposed to concentration changes for, for, for the agent to be diffused. Um, so the, through convention, you, in order to have successful uh, infusion to, a significant, um, to achieve significant volume distribution, the molecule needs to be as water-soluble as possible. Uh, and to be uh, ideally uh, in a chemical structure that can invade as much as possible. So, for example, we know that unfortunately there is a limit to what volume distribution we can achieve. So when you have diffuse, for example, very diffuse tumors throughout the brain, like what we used to call gliomatosis cerebri, we can understand that it is practically impossible to infuse the whole brain. So, um, the, so practically convention has delivery then becomes more of a local therapy. At the same time, convention enhanced delivery can potentially be used for immunotherapy because the, the, there is this paradox where, despite the fact that you don't need necessarily high volume, provided that you trigger the proper immune responses, you can uh, at least start the cascade that can facilitate further responses to, uh, to other immunotherapies. But to be very, uh, very clear, it's very interesting that we have uh, preclinical studies that are showing that in fact, 
the intraventricular administration of, uh, for example, CAR T cells or other uh, immunotherapies, uh, even by PET scans in the laboratory, uh, has shown to be even superior than the direct inoculation of immunotherapy. So immunotherapy specifically, and in terms of the drug delivery, is a whole different uh, aspect. But when it comes to medications and drugs, uh, the convection enhanced delivery provides the best possible local approach. When it comes to intra-arterial delivery, there is the issue of where we because of the nature of the delivery, which is through the artery and the limitations of its anatomy of what aspects of the tumor the artery feeds to, you need to have an agent that follows the first pass pharmacokinetics. That means that you have a high concentration go through the artery and then goes through the veins to follow practically the regular intravenous administration pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics. So that's why we have identified agents for as a good candidates for intra-arterial therapy, primarily nitrosurias and less so the platinums. The nanotechnology is very helpful in both aspects from the point of view that, um, again, can, by the chemical alteration, can uh, increase the way that both in CT and intra-arterial infusion get the drug can uh, go through. In the focus ultrasound, which uh, we are at very early stages, in fact, we just opened our study here for relapsed DAPGs, uh, progressive DAPGs. Um, the limitation is that we don't know yet how much of the, of the blood-brain barrier we need to open to achieve high concentrations that they will have the therapeutic benefit. We do know that in the laboratory, that by opening even for with few millimeters in different parts of the tumor, we achieve three to five fold increase in the concentration of the drugs. Now, this is one obstacle being removed, meaning achieving high concentrations, but that there are so many aspects of the therapeutics that need to be resolved. The, the uh, time of the um, effect of the, of the drug into the tumor, the exposure, the time to exposure, the heterogeneity of the pressures in between the vessels within the tumor, etc. So, but there are they all have as it's clear that all have their pros and cons. Can you give us a sense of what it's like for the patient to undergo either uh, convention enhanced delivery or or ultrasound? Is it multiple catheters? Uh, what, what's the logistics? Yes, yes. So they're very different, extremely different. The convention enhanced delivery is an invasive treatment. Invasive, but also with the advantage, as I said, of guarantees that the drug will reach the, the target. So, for example, in our clinical study that we have at uh, Columbia here with uh, Jeff Bruce and Neil Feldstein, uh, we, we place a portrait a port under the skin, which is practically is a, is a, a metronic pump, is the baclofen pump, as we used to say, uh, to call it in, in the clinic, which is pre-filled with medication. So the patient will go uh, under general anesthesia, a placement of this pump, uh, which is monitored by, uh, you know, wirelessly with the software, and it is connected with a catheter that is being fed under the skin all the way and through the skull into the pons in our trial for the pontangliomas 
or the brain parenchyma for whatever other tumors is used. Now, the, during the convention uh, enhanced delivery, we start the infusion uh, with a very, very small volume, like 0.2 mils per hour. And this allows a very slow infusion and expansion of the, uh, and the addition of uh, volume into the brain so that we avoid uh, permanent damage. The reality, though, is that, uh, number one, it's an invasive procedure. Uh, during the infusion, as you can imagine, because we add volume into the pons or wherever the, the catheter is, uh, there are some transient neurological deficits that we observe, uh, mm -hmm. which are sometimes scary to watch. Um, and thankfully, they last for a few hours to days, and then the patient returns back to the baseline. And ideally, when they have a, an effect uh, with the treatment, they even improve clinically. So during the infusion, uh, as I said, is, is expected to have some transient changes related to increased pressure. For example, in our study, we have not seen any drug-related necessarily toxicity, but we have seen, because we had nine mils, for example, to the ponds, um, it's, um, it's very uh, clear that we occasionally will see some signs of increased pressure, not to the degree that uh, becomes, uh, you know, life-threatening, of course, or, or extremely serious, but the mild to moderate side effects that are temporary. The focus of ultrasound, on the other hand, is non-invasive. So the patient lies down, is practically having an ultrasound on, on the skull. At Columbia, we have the first device that is being used that is not invasive. So the patients do not need surgery, and we use it in combination with microbubbles. Dr. Elisa Konofavos, our professor of biomedical engineering, is the one who has uh, orchestrated all this, and Fred Wu, our radiation oncologist, has done all the preclinical work. Uh, and we finally uh, transferred all this knowledge to the clinic. So we have some experience with uh, adult patients with Alzheimer's already, and we have seen that it is very safe. Um, but there are some theoretical concerns, of course, when you uh, open the endothelium with, with the ultrasound, there is always some risk of bleeding or causing edema. From what has been described through the focus ultrasound in other um, centers, they use different techniques, which includes uh, either stereopexy or um, putting a probe in uh, through surgery. Uh, there hasn't been any significant uh, side effects. So it's extremely different. And of course, there is the intraarterial therapy, which, as we said, is uh, some, uh, somewhere in between invasive, but of course, uh, it uh, side effects are primarily drug-related and uh, acts in the artery. If you had to um, prioritize, because uh, you've described many different strategies um, that you're working on, what are sort of some key next steps for you in the work that you're doing to sort of move um, some of these technologies to the next level, to make it more accessible and, and uh, more into the field of, of brain tumor treatment for children? Yes, so uh, yes, it's a, a pleasantly difficult question to answer at this stage. 
uh, is because very exciting obviously to wait and hear what uh, our uh, the outcomes of these studies will be but for example for the convention enhanced delivery uh, the challenge ahead is first of all to confirm that we see a therapeutic benefit we do have some preliminary data with very small number of patients where we have seen it is uh, safe um, in the very vast majority of the patients uh, but we need to work on improving the, the volume distribution uh, to make it even a better local therapy uh, and the decrease the size of the, of the pumps that we, we use and allow the patients to be treated as outpatients. So the aim, for example, would be uh, in, uh, in a few years to, for the patients to have their, their the catheter uh, placed and be able to use the type of drugs and the, the type of pumps that the patient can be at home and receiving be receiving constant therapy uh, through the port uh, wirelessly. That sounds a bit futuristic, but I don't think we're very far from it. Um, the, in the focused ultrasound, of course, we would prefer to use a non-invasive procedure uh, to administer drugs. Our aim is after this very, very first study to expand it to other brain tumors and also to uh, evaluate uh, the number of sites within the tumor that we can open safe. For example, one unknown question right now is how much of the tumor we can open the blood-brain barrier without causing problems uh, because Obviously, there is the reason the blood barrier is present is to protect the brain for other problems, such as infections, etc., or uh, over uh, toxic medications. So once we solve this, we will have an idea uh, of uh, what kind of drug delivery method uh, is uh, preferable. The ideal, if you ask me, would be to for patients not to need any surgery. Uh, to be able to uh, use systemic therapies that can cross uh, uh, through the barrier because with the convention enhanced delivery, uh, aside from the invasive nature, the problem is that it still remains a local therapy. It's very interesting that the, our preliminary experience uh, with every agent, including even with carboplatin when we used in the UK with uh, Stephen Gill, most of the uh, patients who had evidence of progression where the progression of the relapses were distant relapses with metastatic disease. That means it's an effective therapy, but unfortunately it's a local therapy, so you need something else on top. And to make it even more interesting, we are combining actually the two methods to, because we want to increase the, the, the volume distribution of the CAD by using ultrasound, but this obviously is a very uh, it's a, a very preclinical at the preclinical level right now. I'm afraid we're we're almost out of time here. So, uh, uh, Brandon, do you have any final questions, or um, Dr. Zacharias, do you have any final comments about this whole field, the vision, anything you want to say? Well, the only comment, other than thanking you again for this tremendous uh, opportunity and so much fun to talk to you, is that one of the take-home messages for our community is that. It specifically for us in, in neuro-oncology, 
I think we need to move away from the concept of the simple precision therapy alone. In order to utilize all these fantastic uh, findings with immunotherapy, with targeted therapies, etc., we need to embrace novel technologies that have to do with uh, outside the medicine, you know, biomedical engineering, uh, micro devices, these are types of technologies that we have been unfortunately not ignoring, but not engaging as much. So our uh, concept of multidisciplinary approach goes beyond biology. That's great. Um, Brenda, anything final? Oh, thank you, um, Dr. Zacharolis. This has been fascinating. I have um, many more questions I think that I could could ask, and I think it's an exciting field. I think, as you said, a, a dream would be eliminating surgery. That would be pretty awesome if that was actually uh, an outcome of this. Uh, and also, we didn't touch on the role of radiation, and so I'd be fascinated to follow up at some time with how the radiation affects the blood-brain barrier and how that's implicated here as well, because we have a multi-pronged approach to pediatric brain tumors. And I deeply appreciate your efforts and resonate with the multidisciplinary approach. We need all hands on deck to uh, tackle this difficult disease. So thank you for your efforts. Thank you so much. We'll have to have him back for another episode to get a follow-up and dig deeper, I think. We're going to have to wrap it up for this week. So thank you both for being here. Thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology. We welcome your comments, questions, or thoughts on topics for future episodes. Just drop us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow Dr. Kripe on Twitter at kidsonkdoc. Send an email to Dr. Weigel at weige007 at umn.edu. And find all Twipo episodes at solvingkidscancer.org.